Please be seated. In the year 1975, Bob Jones University, a major Christian conservative university in the States, lifted a prohibition regarding which students from certain cultural backgrounds, or even with too much melanin in their skin, could attend classes as students in their school. However, in the same year, around the same time when the Supreme Court of the United States recognized that this was a wrong practice for any government-supported institution to impose. In the same year, Bob Jones imposed a ban on interracial dating and marriage among its students. In their words, these relationships broke down barriers which God himself had established. The ban was not lifted until the year 2000. And even then, dating between ethnicities required a special letter of approval from parents. Last week, we began to see that what you really think about the gospel will be revealed in who you fellowship with. Who you receive as a brother in Christ reveals what you believe about Jesus' salvation and what it accomplishes. In Paul's biography last week, we saw the significance of the apostles receiving Titus, a Greek Christian, without asking him to be circumcised. This week, Paul will continue his biographical material in Galatians to show how this matter of living out the gospel is displayed, not only in who we are willing to agree is a part of the church, but will be displayed in who we welcome into our churches, into our homes, and around our tables. Let's turn to Galatians 2, and we'll read verses 11 to 14. Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I don't know about you, but to me it feels like Paul is sharing some pretty personal information here. To talk so openly, to write openly about this disagreement with Peter, remember, seems, seems quite forward. But Paul recognized that there was a need here for him to talk very publicly because Peter is an apostle. Paul has already laid out the significance of being an apostle in this letter. Remember that there were men specially appointed, witnesses of Christ who were gonna serve as the foundation of the church using God's inerrant word delivered through their preaching and their writing. In this way, the apostles were a great deal like the Old Testament prophets. They were meant to deliver inerrant, infallible words from God. But the men themselves, including Peter, were not inerrant. 
Peter's apostolic ministry did mean, though, that if he erred, it would likely influence and confuse a great many people. Paul says that when Peter removed himself from the Gentiles, many of the Jews, including poor Barnabas, who had already faithfully ministered to the Gentiles for so long, were thrown into confusion, were tempted to be led astray along with him. This is where Paul's assertion earlier in the letter that he is not going to be influenced by men, by their approval, even among pillars in the church, this is where that is really put to the test for Paul. The Bible very deliberately gives us many, many accounts of the failures and errors of its heroes, even of its own authors. We get to see the sin of Moses and David and Paul and Peter. In doing so, scripture is very clear in pointing us only to one man, pointing us to the one that these men were pointing to in their inerrant words, to Jesus, to the gospel of his salvation, of grace that even these great men depended on. Every Christian from the humblest servant to the most influential teacher is totally dependent on Christ. We share that. We all find ourselves needing to repent and depend on grace. And since the apostles, none of us even shares the charge of sometimes delivering inerrant words from God. Now, all of us completely depend upon the finished scriptures. All of us can err. Even in our teaching, even in teaching from the most established and prominent platforms. This is important because it can be so easy to treat prominent teachers like they are inerrant, deferring to them because we don't feel confident enough in our own ability to search the scriptures, to know their wisdom, compared to someone whose teaching is so famous and influential. I find that it gets a lot harder even for us to evaluate preachers and teachers who are particularly influential in our own salvation or in an important season of our sanctification. It is so easy to forget the humanity of those who we only know through their established teaching. Every word we hear from them is carefully prepared teaching material. And this can make us blind to the reality that influential, wise, righteous, mighty, powerful brothers can commit serious errors. They aren't, there aren't just two categories. There aren't perfect teachers and heretics. Here's the ones who are perfect. Here's the ones we can't listen to. Great gospel-loving brothers and sisters can err, and at times they can err seriously. And we cannot forget this, because there could very well be a moment in our life when we are feeling pressure from our own hearts or from others to concede to an influential teacher when there is no biblical grounds to do so merely because they are influential. It is obviously not wrong to be respectful and humble when we think we disagree with a teacher that we have so often benefited from. If I believe that I have a disagreement with John Calvin, with Martin Lloyd-Jones, with Sinclair Ferguson, I want to be very humble about it. I want to go to the word. I want to see whether or not I should be the one taking correction because I have disagreed with their teaching. But the danger is that our concern over disagreeing with our favorite teachers is not just a matter of whether we're rejecting sound biblical teaching. On the one hand, we might 
not actually want to be students of the scriptures ourselves so much as we want to be students of our favorite teachers who tell us what the scriptures mean. We would prefer to read books or listen to podcasts or sermons in which our favorite people explain the Bible to us than we would like to grapple with scripture itself. We don't know scripture except through them, so we, we figure we would never have the tools to evaluate their teaching. Another common problem is that as much as we love the teachers themselves, we also love the tribe that comes with the teacher. The identity of being somebody who follows that person, who believes what they believe, who walks in their teaching. It is so easy for us to breeze over Paul's warning to the Corinthians not to become followers of Paul and Apollos. So sure that warning doesn't apply to us, especially if the Pauls and Apollos we're following are, like Paul and Apollos, people who actually love teaching the scriptures. In this age of information where we can spend so much time learning from people we've never met, even forming communities with people we've never met around the people that we've never met, it is so easy for us to start defining ourselves based upon prominent teachers and movements. We must be so cautious about preferring the definition of these associations than we like then we prefer knowing that we belong to Christ. How horrible it would be to have a church of Sprulian Christians, MacArthurite Christians, Piperians, Kellerites, or heaven forbid, Bob the Tomatoists. <laughs> Even very helpful distinctions like Calvinist or Reformed are only helpful if they are nomenclature to explain a conviction which you believe is true and sound and biblical. They are not meant to be definitions of cultures and tribes of people. And it's so easy to form cultures around these titles with our own distinctions and insider behavior and traits that we start judging people by. Our love of teachers and groups of teachers should only be rooted in our very careful, biblically informed recognition that they themselves are faithfully and carefully teaching the word. And thus, as Paul says, that they are only planting and watering what God himself is actually nourishing and growing. Whether or not we love someone's teaching for pointing us to the truth or are too in love with the teacher is going to be tested when these great teachers err. This will test whether we love how God has used the teacher for his glory or whether we love the culture, the community, the attitude surrounding the teacher, which we would be scared to lose by disagreeing with the teacher at the center of it. Afraid of the critique of our friends who define themselves by that teacher, by that ministry, by that movement. In our present age where it is so easy for anybody, regardless of their credentials, to go out and start a podcast, start a blog, publish a book. We have to be so careful in this world of many prominent teachers with varying credentials and associations being catapulted to prominence. Must be careful even with those with the best credentials. Of course, the clear challenge that this gives all of us is to know the word. 
Our favorite teachers are only worth their salt if they want us to grow as students of the scriptures, if they help us to grow as independent students of the scriptures, which would help us critique them if they erred. Remember how Paul started this letter to Galatians. If I ever show up here preaching anything different than the gospel I preached to you last time, count me accursed. Peter himself, the great apostle, was giving in to his fear of men. Fear of losing the culture and the associations of these men from Jerusalem, which might be taken from him if he continued to eat with Gentiles, continued to eat like Gentiles. And he led Barnabas and many other Jews in their fear of men. On the one hand, Peter's sin feels a lot like schoolyard antics, doesn't it? He's come to Antioch, this Gentile city, and he started eating at the Gentile lunch table. He's even started eating what the Gentiles are bringing for lunch. He's trying shrimp. He's trying pork. But then the cool kids that Peter usually associates with show up, and they sit at another table, these men from Jerusalem. And they peer pressure Peter into switching back to the cool table. On the one hand, yes, this is very petty, but there is a history which explains why these Jews from Jerusalem were so anxious when they saw someone eating with Gentiles, which shows us how this issue relates to the gospel. To the Jew, who you ate with was a big deal. It was a big part of the law of Moses that we find in the cleanliness laws, which Cal read us uh, a final note, a final summary of earlier. A great many of these laws, often the laws that the world mocks as being random and strange and ridiculous, things about not mixing fabrics, not crossbreeding cows, those were meant to be a visible demonstration of how Israel was set apart as God's people. Cleanliness was about separating one thing from another, clean from unclean. It's very similar to the meaning of the word holy, set apart. So this was a lesson of what God was actually accomplishing in their hearts, actually setting them apart, making them holy, making them devoted, heart, soul, mind, and strength, as the law says, to God, to his character. Even circumcision pointed to this idea of being set apart. The nations around Israel were uncircumcised, but this pointed to a deeper problem in their own hearts, that they were still enemies of God. The signs of cleanliness for God's people pointed to the ways that their own lives and hearts would actually set them apart from the nations around them. Now, as Brother Cal read, both the signs of cleanliness and the true setting apart were actually offered both to native and sojourner, to the fleshly born Jew and the Gentile who wanted to join with them. As soon as Israel leaves Egypt, God says, if one of the, these foreigners wants to come among you, wants to celebrate the Passover, he's got to get circumcised just like you. If a Gentile wanted to love God as well, to really be set apart in their hearts, they also had to partake in the visible signs that indicated they were set apart along with the Jews. Many of these signs, of course, related to what the Jews could and couldn't eat. By rejecting certain foods as unclean, they were learning about what it meant to set themselves apart from the unclean, to set themselves apart from the sinful ways of the people around them. Now, just as Brother Cal wonderfully shepherded us with in his prayer, how easy it is, how easy it was to read that heart and think, okay, this is the way for me to look better. That itch 
set in as soon as the law came. And by the Jesus day, it had fully flowered through a system the Pharisees had created, expanding these food laws into a fully-fledged external system of food-related regulations. Taking these signs, these good signs, which taught the Jews what their love of God did, how it set them apart, turning them into this pride-feeding, points-based system to prove who was the best at staying clean, who could carry out the intricate rituals, who could do the hand washings the best to show they were the most clean among God's people. This is why Jesus, speaking with the Pharisees, just absolutely devastated them when he said in Mark 7, "'Hear me, all you, and understand.'" There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is explaining exactly what we heard even in the reading from the law that Brother Cal read, that cleanliness was not a simple matter of what food you put inside you. It was not a matter of externals. This was always a visible demonstration of where real cleanliness exists in the heart That's where God judges whether a person is clean or defiled. And Mark tells us that when Jesus devastated the Pharisees with this line, he was now declaring all foods clean. Jesus was paving the way for this incredible vision which Peter was going to receive after Jesus ascended, which came in Acts 10. Acts says Peter became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheep descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. As soon as the vision is finished, Peter is made to understand its meaning. It wasn't just foods that God had made clean. Again, the food was pointing to something bigger. A messenger immediately arrived saying that uncircumcised Gentiles wanted to know the gospel. And when Peter goes to them, they are saved and they receive the Holy Spirit. And the Gentiles start coming in en masse to receive this cleanliness that the Jewish laws were always pointing to. This ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish law was coming to the Gentiles, the promise of eternal cleanliness that the Jews had received in Ezekiel 36, when God said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Look at that wonderful fulfillment of the law, how the cleansing of God's people would take place truly in their hearts, that it would be a renewal unto cleansing. We see this pointing to the promises of regeneration and sanctification that come through the gospel and the spirit. Ultimately, this was accomplished When Jesus died on the cross, taking the penalty of our sins so that we could get his righteous record, so we could be received by God, so that we could have his spirit in us, so that we could be cleansed inside and out, regeneration and sanctification. Jesus accomplished everything the food laws were teaching about and pointing to. 
the true setting apart of God's people. And Peter gets this marvelous, earth-shattering revelation in Acts 10 that that same promise has been extended to the Gentiles as well. And so Peter explains the results of this vision by saying that now the gospel shall be preached, making no distinction between Gentile and Jew. That is why who Peter had lunch with mattered. That's the long answer. Peter himself had abandoned Jewish food laws. As Paul said, Peter himself was now living like a Gentile. He was now enjoying the freedom of the gospel. He was living in the reality that those cleanliness laws were always pointing to. To sit at a Jew's only table because he would only eat with people who obeyed Jewish food laws would be to reject that God's promised cleansing had come to the Gentiles. It would in fact reject that Christ had truly fulfilled the law, that he had accomplished what the cleansing laws were pointing to. It would be to go back to shadows, and not even shadows, but to the false understanding of the law that the Pharisees had taught where its only purpose was to make distinctions between superior people and inferior people. Now, I think in this case that the Jews who were pressuring Peter from James in Jerusalem likely themselves knew the gospel. Even this circumcision party, they'd come from the apostles in Jerusalem, they knew them well, but they were at the very least recovering Pharisees still dealing with their old life, still struggling to accept their Gentile brothers as brothers, struggling to really trust in the freedom of the gospel. Instead of heretics invading the church, we're now dealing with who Paul calls hypocrites. Men who know the gospel say they believe it, but their hypocrisy is knowingly giving in to denying the gospel in their actions. This is at least true for Peter himself when he gives in to this pressure. Peter knows the Gentiles have really been cleansed in their spirit, just as the Jews, without having to keep the cleanliness laws, without even having to be circumcised. He's already affirmed in Acts that God makes no distinction, that Jew and Gentile are both saved by grace alone. He himself has lived in this reality, that the food laws are now fulfilled and no longer necessary. So in this case, Peter was not knowingly denying the Gentiles' salvation, he was giving into fear of losing the approval of the community with which he was most comfortable. He was afraid of giving up the favor of his common associations for these new believers that he himself was just getting comfortable fellowshipping with. Eating with the Gentiles was probably still hard for Peter, probably still strange for Peter. It was a growing experience. It was stretching him. And then imagine when these Jewish uh, Christians from James walk in and they find Peter sitting there with his mouth open over a big, beautiful leg of prosciutto. How shocked they would look. Suddenly, Peter's going to get all self-conscious and afraid of their looks of disapproval. So maybe Peter said to himself, you know what? It's not wrong to eat with Gentiles. It's not wrong to eat like Gentiles. I just don't want to eat with them right now. I'm free to do what I like but I'm going to choose to only eat with Jews who follow the food laws. That's just a matter of preference. It's just a matter of culture. It's just a matter of tradition, just a matter of people. It's hard to tell how bad this problem had gotten. Were they eating at different tables? Were they eating in different homes? Were they even sharing different Lord's Supper meals? 
in any of these cases, the one leading to the other, pointing to the other, Paul says Peter was condemning himself. Was there racism here? I think you could say there was. Was there cultural superiority? There definitely seems to have been that. But Paul isn't going to isolate these sins either. He wants to go right to the heart of what Peter was demonstrating. When you give in to the peer pressure of these men, Peter's actions were those of a man who was ashamed of the gospel. Of someone who was afraid to live like all people are saved by faith alone and united by Christ's grace. This distinction among who he ate with left room for the Jews to say that the Jew and Gentile weren't fully reconciled to each other. Maybe we're all saved by grace, but then among Christians, we've got the people who just have grace and the people who've got grace and law, grace and ethnicity, grace and works. Paul says that even when Peter's behavior implies that this is true, it is conduct not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. If this is the gospel God approved of, then you are warring against grace. You're shaving it away. You're breaking it down at the edges until ultimately you are back at feeding your pride and Jesus died for nothing. This is why Paul demonstrating the height of his credentials as an apostle appointed to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, the gospel of grace, confident that Peter does know the gospel, that he is a brother in Christ, accuses Peter of hypocrisy. And Paul has to do it publicly. Peter is publicly showing that it is fine to give in to your preferred community, to break the church into groups that you like associating with and don't want to associate with. Paul must publicly declare that even a gospel that distinguishes among saved people is not a gospel of grace. It's a gospel that will naturally lead those who believe it into works, into insiders and outsiders and condemnation. Now, even when our dinner parties do not include the historically significant mingling of both Jew and Gentile, the question of who we gather with in our homes whose homes we gather in, whose tables we sit at, is incredibly significant. To offer hospitality and fellowship to each other practically is what it means to be the church, to be God's family. Now, the worship service is, in a way, the big family gathering where we all get to fellowship with each other, where we all are meant to enjoy each other's hospitality, offer it to each other, because we're enjoying God's hospitality. He who welcomed us into his household. The Lord's Supper is the table that he lays for us, which rests on, which proclaims, which strengthens us in the gospel of Jesus. Therefore, who we have fellowship with, who we offer hospitality to, that is meant to reflect all through the week that family that is gathered around God's household, around God's table. Who we offer our gifts to, who we seat at our tables, to whom we give our time and our hospitality reflects what we believe about the church and thus what we believe about the gospel of grace. The apostles repeatedly exhort the church in their letters what it means to live out the gospel by not refusing fellowship with any other brother. Peter himself sums it up this way in 1 Peter 4, 8-11. Above all, 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. And what does love look like to Peter? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'd say it's pretty clear here that Peter heeded Paul's correction about who he should be extending joyful hospitality to. To glorify God, Peter says, is all the time in our homes with our time pouring out the gifts that he gave us to one another with the reverence of his having given them, particularly in our service and hospitality to each other. That is the practical life of the love of the church. It's the practical outworking of the gospel of grace by which God saved us. That is how practically God desires to be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, the many ways that we have contrived through history Why we don't have a responsibility to fellowship, to sit around the table, to act in love towards certain brothers and sisters we don't want to have changed. It is very easy for us to hear that Bob Jones example and say, that is really disgusting. Without reflecting on what cultural impulses could lead us to the same basic idea of claiming that somebody is a Christian, well, theoretically, I'm united with them to Christ, and then practically trying to find ways to ignore it or even deny it. The human heart has contrived thousands of hypocrisies by which we say, yes, we are totally all saved only by the gospel. But here's why we need to preserve some distinctions and divisions. The medieval church separated the religious and saintly classes. They hid them away from the disgusting sinful masses by putting them in convents and monasteries. Some societies developed special chapels in the homes of the lords, the very rich in palaces or universities, so that they could preach specifically to those people without having to be influenced by the fellowship of the lower classes, or even just setting apart special box seats for those wealthy people. And then, of course, as Bob Jones shows, the divisions based on ethnicity and race and saying that those are people groups that need to be recognized within the fellowship of the church. Today, I would say that the great secular force that shapes who we want to welcome into the church, who we choose to fellowship with and don't want to, is consumerism. Consumerism, which has taken hold of pragmatism in the church, tells us to approach the church kind of like you approach a restaurant, like any business where you consume. Bring your preferences, look at the menu, Only take part in what you like, and if they don't have enough of what you like, go find another restaurant. So at the church, rather than saying, I'm in God's house, which he shapes according to his designs through the gospel, we say, here's what I'm looking for in a church. We baptize this way of thinking. We call it missional. We cater to consumeristic preferences because we say we're trying to reach a certain type of people with the gospel. How else are we going to get 40-year-old Hungarian fly fishermen to church unless we plan specifically how we're going to minister to the 40-year-old Hungarian fly fishermen? They've got preferences that need to be met. We have so bought into this lie 
This lie which says that people are slaves to what they, they, they prefer, they're slaves to their pleasures and preferences, that we carve up the church and we split churches on the lines of how people like spending their time and who they like spending their time with. The church has often, often seen a need to disciple people based on where they are at in their life. We offer catechism to the young. We offer marriage counseling to the newly married. Oftentimes, these, these ministries were meant to bring together different ages of the church. Here's the old and wise to give catechism to the young. Here are the long married to help the new married. But increasingly, this has turned into ministries that took hold of that idea and separated ages and life stages from each other, not because of discipleship needs, but because we assumed everyone was a slave to their preference. And because people have an increasing dislike of mingling with those that they didn't have enough in common with. Children got removed from the service so that both adults and children didn't have to make accommodations for each other there. The adults didn't have to put up with the children being upset. The children didn't have to get made upset by my preaching. <laughs> Youth groups shifted off of Focused discipleship that we felt was important for that age, and it became a question of saying, what do we have to do to make these kids think church is enjoyable? What do we have to do to prove to them that it's fun to be here? And you think that stopped with youth? Seniors ministries, men's and women's ministries, all became the same thing we were feeding our teenagers. How can I make you say that this church is a good time? What do I have to do? What do I have to give you? Who do I have to keep you from? We increasingly isolated people into demographics because that's the only way to offer them what most entertained them without needing to accommodate anyone, others, anyone else's tastes and preferences. More and more different things that we have to do, more and more ways we have to carve people up. And once this thinking starts, it does not stop. Soon we need an older seniors ministry and a younger seniors ministry, right? Yeah. Soon we need an older youth ministry and a younger youth ministry. And then we find, because we've spent all of youth ministry catering to their preferences, that by the time the youth graduate, they don't act like adults and they don't want to spend time with adults. Oh, so now we need a young adults ministry. And then the young adults graduate and they still don't want to hang out with the other adults. I still don't like those people. And now we need an older young adults ministry because we can't keep them in the young adults ministry because the young, young adults already don't want to spend time with them. If we get all these people together, if we try and unite them even around the gospel, nobody's going to have any fun. Nobody's going to like it. This thinking grows until it gets into God's family gathering, until it even gets into the worship service, getting divided according to our selfish preferences and our desire to not spend time with each other. Now we need a service for people who like old music, and one for people who like new music. Now, we need three locations. One for people who want a traditional church experience, one for people who want a really hip church experience, and one who want their church experience to feel as little like a church experience as possible. Eventually, we just start planning churches with target markets. Here's the young people's church. Here's the old people's church. Here's the church for this this group of people, here's the church for this group of people. Till we feel no problem in saying to somebody who shows up, oh, you probably shouldn't come here. This church is only trying to reach 
30s mid to high income flannel addicted Instagram influencing millennials. You would muddy the brand, and missions needs us to keep the brand solid. So please donate to the church. You can, you can go, but leave your money. This is happening. Many of you know it's happening. The church is being divided into smaller and smaller quadrants. And in the name of missions, we are turning the church into me monsters. More selfish than the world around us. So that we feel no shame telling a brother, oh, I didn't know you listened to Garth Brooks. Well, now I'm probably going to need to find a ministry or maybe a church where I don't have to spend any time with you. You understand, don't you? We make this seem positive. We focus on who we're catering to, not who we're shutting out. Somehow we miss that if you ever say this ain't your grandma's church, you only have to rearrange the words to say, grandma, this ain't your church. This is where we need Paul to step up in the middle of the potluck and walk across the fellowship hall and say, friend, you stand condemned. Your conduct is not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. Your actions are denying the very gospel that you claim as your only hope and salvation. Your actions are suggesting it's not true. Any attempt to cut up the people of God into those you want to be with and those you don't want to be with is hypocrisy as long as you are claiming the gospel of grace. You are claiming to love the gospel and denying its power. We want the church to look just like the world around us, where there is one place for older people to go, maybe another place over there for the young people to go. This is where the jazz fans can go. That's where the model train enthusiasts can go. Over there is Koreatown, there's Little Italy, there's the high income district, there's the low income district. And suddenly the church becomes a big walking, talking testament to the fact that the gospel has accomplished absolutely nothing. To just make us more selfish versions of the people outside the church. I am not condemning enjoying things. If you like model trains and you want to go hang out with some people and talk about model trains, go to town. Maybe not Garth Brooks. <laughs> I think that might always be sinful to talk about. <laughs> but my friend, we must be on high alert as to whether or not we are using this small group of people that we are willing to spend time with whether we're using any aspect of our lives, our culture, or preferences to cut off or ignore anyone in the church we don't want to be with. You are not going to know everyone here in equal measure. But are you satisfying yourself with a very specific group of people who meet your extra biblical credentials about who you want to fellowship with? Have you limited the sphere of your gift giving, your hospitality, your associations to those who you want to offer them to, even as you claim the gospel has united you with the whole church? Are you effectively sitting at table with only the select few you've chosen? Now, I want to stop and say that I have seen, and our elders have seen, how beautifully and wonderfully 
So many of you have been a walking, talking testament to gospel unity. Maybe you did it consciously. You made the hard decision to come to this church when there was another that better suited your comfort zone or aligned with a particular distinction or preference. And you made that decision knowing there might be some hard, challenging, or awkward interactions ahead. Or you made the hard decision to start having people over to form relationships with those who you would not naturally be found in your homes around your table. Crossing age distinctions, crossing cultural distinctions, even just crossing preferential distinctions when it was challenging for you to do. Maybe it wasn't even a conscious decision you had to make. You just threw open your doors, the doors to your home, your pantry, and you accepted everybody who came in. Whether this was consciously or unconsciously done, whether it was easy work or hard work, beloved, the Lord is so delighted. He is so pleased with the fruit of the gospel in your life. The Lord is pleased to see how you glorified the gospel with your time and your home and your gifts. Maybe it made for some awkward exchanges, mispronounced names. It's hard when a Stefan and a Stefan show up within a year. (laughs) Strained conversations, misunderstandings. Maybe there were even times when somebody needed to repent. That's good sanctification that the Lord offered you because you were obedient to his command to love without distinction within his church. He refined and made you more holy in ways that would not have happened if you had remained in your small group of people isolated by your commonality and your preferences. The Lord sees you. He sees you joyfully singing songs in this church that are not your cup of tea because they bless your brother or sister. He sees you in glad conversation with that person the world would tell you to divide from over political lines or traditional lines. He sees you around your table with those that the world would never have expected to see there. Yes, even those who disagree with you about COVID restrictions calling each other brother and sister and friend. And he is so pleased because that is the church being the church. That is the gospel doing what the gospel does. If you are pouring out your home and your gifts, if you're loving your brothers and sisters this way, even if you're working on it and want to, never feel inadequate as to whether or not you are serving this church in an official volunteer capacity. At at our church, we do try and limit our official volunteer positions only to those who help and bless the church. In part, getting rid of these preferential entertainment ministries is one of the things that will limit the number of official volunteer positions that we have. But the Lord is not ever going to ask you What position did you hold? What ministry did you serve? He's going to ask whether the gospel poured out in love for your neighbor, your brother and sister, in hospitality, in fellowship and love that reflected the reconciliation that we have in Christ. That's the front lines of the church. That's even what we hope our few official volunteer positions 
can celebrate and be blessed by. Fellowship and love of God's united family. When you bow your heads around the table and you say grace as brothers and sisters with those who apart from the gospel would have been strangers and enemies to you, that delights our Lord because that is the work that brings glory to Jesus. That is the visible testimony of the gospel that you will then verbally and vocally proclaim to the world. It's the good gospel work that is going to sanctify you. That's going to be what trains your kids. That's what you want to train them in. That's what's going to actually encourage our hearts in the gospel. Around your table, in your home, you can watch just like Jew and Gentile watched as two men are turned into one, as the dividing wall of hostility is torn down, as enemies become brothers. Because when we were all strangers and enemies of God, Jesus died to make us a family, not of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, not of old Christians and young Christians, not of country fan Christians and rock fan Christians, Christ's Christians. We will conclude with Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there is one gospel of one Savior and Lord, that we have one faith, and that through that one baptism, we become one people. I thank you that the gospel does a unifying work that the world just can't believe in. And I pray that it would be our wonderful gospel testimony, even as I have seen it already in this church, that the gospel accomplishes reconciliation where the world would leave us divided. Not even just acknowledging each other, but receiving each other. Not claiming that we are united, but uniting. And Father, may we as a church continue to engage in that wonderful work for which you will be pleased, even when it's challenging, even when it's stretching, trusting that that is gospel sanctification. And may Christ be glorified in the unity of his people. May the gospel shine out in our everyday interactions, around our tables, in our homes, in our conversations. And may all glory in these things go to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In him we do glorify as his church, in whose name we pray. Amen.